Hi guys, we're back for another podcast. We're going to try this again, see how, see how it goes. Um, this is Kent Roundy. I am a psychiatrist here at the Utah State Hospital. We've started over the last couple of days trying to do a couple of podcasts to provide information about uh, mental health topics that might be helpful either in your clerkship rotations during your third year or on your shelf exam. Today we're going to talk a little bit about histopathology, maybe, a little yeah. bit of the neurodevelopmental uh, hypothesis of schizophrenia and how that ties in some of the other hypotheses. I have a couple of students here with me today. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, Phil Bennett. I'm a fourth-year medical student uh, rotating once again with Dr. Roundy since it's such a good rotation. And uh, yeah, I'm going into pathology and I uh, kind of chose this as a topic of interest uh, to see if there was any correlation and any uh, research done into the uh, etiologies, basically, of, of schizophrenia, and if there is any ground in in you know histology or you know pathology, the stuff that I will be doing, basically, and uh, if there's yeah any ground to that. So yeah, did you learn anything interesting? I learned a lot of things that were very interesting, um, and if if you want, well. I'll let Cody introduce himself, and then I'll get into my, <laughs> my ramble. <laughs> yeah, uh, my name is Cody Patterson. I'm a third-year medical student here on my behavioral medicine uh, third-year rotation. Um, I'm in the last week uh, of my rotation here now, and already learned a ton. Hopefully I do well on my, on my shelf exam next week. You better. Yeah. No, just kidding. Yeah, if not, <laughs> uh, we'll talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's start off with just very basically, a uh, very very first step. What is schizophrenia? Right. Um, I think Phil, you uh, put some information together that is a nice description that leads into the discussion. Um, sure. If you want to go through that, let's start with that. Yeah, I mean, I basically looked at the DSM five again just to touch base on what you need to have to diagnose schizophrenia. Both uh, symptom-wise, of course, you have your, your positive symptoms of delusions, hallucinations, whether they're auditory uh, or other types of hallucinations as well. Disorganized speech, grossly disorganized behavior, which I learned was goal-directed behavior that interfere, interferes with your um, activities of daily living, you know, or bizarre, silly behavior, unpredictable agitation, social inhibition. Those are all categorized as grossly disorganized behavior or your behavior can be catatonic as well um, is defined as a state of stupor or unresponsive behavior you can also display negative symptoms which are uh, examples include blunting of your affect dis decreased speech apathy anhedonia etc and uh, what I remember what I thought re-remembered, I guess, about the diagnosis is that you do need to have either delusion, delusions, hallucinations, or disorganized speech in addition to other positive and negative symptoms in order to count for schizophrenia. And of course the timing is really important. <clears throat> you need to have one of those first three symptoms, the delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, for at least one month, and you need to have a, a you know, amalgamation of some of those symptoms and uh, that affect your ADLs for at least six months uh, or more. Uh, if, it, if it's between one and six months, that's uh, schizo, what is it, schizophreniform, 
and then less than one month is a brief psychotic uh, disorder or a psychotic break. So, Good. yeah. So, does that sound familiar, Cody? That does. That all rings true to what I've been studying. So. <laughs> Good job, Phil. Now that that stuff shows up on the test, right? The, the yeah. test questions. So you've been taking, Cody, you've been taking uh, prep exams, so UWorld, yep. QBank kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And the importance of understanding the onset, the timing, those kinds of things, pretty important in some of the questions that you're being asked, right? Yes, very important to understand the timing, um, the, the very specific, like Phil said, the disorganized speech, the hallucinations, um, very important to, to know the quantity of, of uh, symptoms they have and for how long they've been going on. Um, yeah, very important. And I would say just as high yield, I, I feel like I can say this. I'm, I'm not quoting any specific questions that I had. One, because I don't remember. It's been a year and a half ago. But I feel like from what I read in, in books and, and, and and stuff that helped me to prepare for clerkships and, and shelf exams. The treatment of, of schizophrenia is very important to know. Uh, so you've got your typical drugs. I don't know if we're going to talk about it in this podcast per se, but but knowing the drugs and knowing their side effects basically is what they like to test on. Yeah. Is what I feel. So you have to know the stem, which is yep. make sure you get the right diagnosis, then you need to know the treatment generally. Exactly. Sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. I, I would add one caveat. It, it seems like when students come back and say they tripped up on some areas, it's often that there can be some medical conditions that cause psychosis-like symptoms, and you just need to be able to differentiate between those medical conditions and schizophrenia. Um, I'm going to read a statement I have in a slide. I've got a slide deck that I've presented a couple of times in some different settings. And uh, I want you to respond to that, Phil, based on what you've read and learned in preparation for this discussion. Sure. Um, here it is. Two people with the same diagnosis of schizophrenia may have different positive and or negative symptoms with a different set of social dysfunctions and yet have the same diagnosis. Totally agree. Totally agree. Explain that to me. So, I'll start very broad and general of what I found in the few days of, of hardcore research that I've gone into diving into the literature. I feel like schizophrenia has been studied for a long time and there's so much research in fact that you alluded to the Schizophrenia Bulletin which is a journal specifically for schizophrenia and psychosis. And so just having one basically a one diagnosis that has its own journal, you know, that speaks to how much research can actually go into and uh, has been done for this particular disease and understanding the etiologies of it. And there are so many hypotheses, and I, and I choose that word carefully because there, that's basically what I found is that there are a lot of theories behind why schizophrenia occurs. Mm -hmm. A lot of truth that has been gained as far as people finding bits and pieces of, of, of things that do happen in schizophrenia, different biomarkers, different genes that are aberrant, uh, different hypotheses that do have uh, a lot of backing towards them. But that's the thing, there are so many different uh, avenues that you can take to explain psychosis and schizophrenia that one true statement does not exist as far as the etiology 
of, of, of his psychosis is true. And so that's why, and, and it makes sense too, because that's why you see different people suffering from different types of, of symptoms, a different mixture of positive and negative symptoms, different delusions, different, uh, uh, you know, uh, hallucinations that they might suffer from uh, can be explained because there are so many different types of, so, so many different ways you can get schizophrenia. I'm going to jump over to Cody for just a second. So Cody, um, I think we asked you to be able to comment on a couple of the different kinds of hypothesis that you found in the shelf exam prep books. Mm -hmm. So uh, what kinds of hypothesis did you run into? Well, first I think it's important that we, we say that it, they are hypotheses, right? There is no exact mechanism that we understand for schizophrenia, but there are, um, they think, you know, there can be some genetics involved. I think Phil mentioned a few genes that, that are common in schizophrenic patients. Um, altered brain chemicals, most of the pharmacotherapy that we use blocks like dopamine, like our first gen antipsychotics, they're dopamine blockers and you know the GABAs and the glutamatergic um, drugs that we use and then the third the third aspect of, of, of why people think we develop schizophrenia um, it can be a product of an individual's environment both their psycho um, environment and their like physical environment how they've been treated as kids there are some hypotheses out there about uh, develop that schizophrenia may in fact be a developmental disease. Maybe it was something that happened while they were in the womb or while they were growing and developing. Um, there's still a lot of research going on out there about these, but primarily people people look to the genetics, the genes that can go wrong, the altered brain chemicals, and then one's own physical environment. If I may add to, before we get into more of like the neurodevelopmental hypothesis and, and, and so forth, I, I think it, it is very important to point out that environmental factors are very important. Uh, you see a lot of, and I feel like this is really heavily stated in review books, and so therefore it should be fairly common and true, that stressful environments uh, can cause psychotic breaks. You have your typical 20-year-old you know, young adult who is going to college or something. That's like the typical stem that you might see in, in practice tests where they have, you know, start to display these symptoms. And so they're, or you have a, a, a big thing too is not only just general drug use, but cannabis use as well has been heavily correlated with uh, psychosis and a risk factor to increase um, more long-term psychosis as you would see in schizophrenia. And so uh, a lot of these environmental factors do hold uh, an important uh, place in as far as etiology is concerned in addition to any any malfunction uh, that you see intrinsically in the brain. So I'm going to go back and name a couple of these things. I think you alluded to something called the dopamine hypothesis mm -hmm. that the cause of schizophrenia is dysregulated dopamine. Um, you, Phil, related, uh, I think alluded to the stress diathesis hypothesis the idea that there are there is some very difficult event that happens somewhere around age 20. Um, we think about that as maybe being in the military and being away from home. Um, 
going away to college, I think, is a common STEM. Mm -hmm. And practically speaking, here in Utah, there are a lot of young men and women who go on and serve missions for their for their uh, de denomination, and seem to have psychotic breaks during those those years that they're out serving. So, so the stress diathesis hypothesis, the dopamine hypothesis, and you sent me a very interesting article. It was an article by uh, let's see, Murray was his last name. Do you have the name of that article? Yes, I can pull it up real quick. Something about thirty years later, the neurodevelopmental hypothesis. Oops, kind of a description of of how we started off with uh, this idea that this was a neurodevelopmental illness and how maybe uh, Kraepelin got us perhaps on the wrong foot for a while with the neurodegenerative hypothesis and now we're maybe back into this idea that that neurodevelopmental insults are a good explanation for the development of schizophrenia. Yeah, do you have the name of that article up? It's coming up. Got to I think I got it right here now. So okay. it's called, uh, the title is 30 Years On, colon, How the Neurodevelopmental Hypothesis of Schizophrenia Morphed into the Devel Developmental Risk Factor Model of Psychosis. And so it's basically a, uh, a history lesson of how uh, 30 years ago or so, uh, this article was written in 2017, uh, how, how it's basically started, like you were saying, um, post-neurodegenerative hypothesis, how a neurodevelopmental approach to schizophrenia has evolved into including a lot of uh, other risk factors such as drug usage in adolescence mm -hmm. um, when the brain is uh, still very plastic in, in nature. So, Right. I, I think one of the... So we know it's not just a genetic illness. There are questions I think that I see now periodically in the different kinds of tests that I take and the question goes something along the lines of, we have now identified genes to explain schizophrenia. And uh, essentially the answer is no to that question, right? That's false. We've found some genes that explain some cases of schizophrenia, but not, not consistently. What I really liked about this article was that it helped explain the interplay between some genes and the environment and the interplay between the environment turning on and off genes potentially and leading to changes in the brain that might explain schizophrenia. Um, the author makes just this very, very compelling case, and I think it, it makes a lot of sense, as to why they, the concordance for twins is not 100%, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a question that shows up periodic, periodically on different uh, review books that I read through in, in my preparation. The question goes something along the lines of, what is the concordance between monozygotic twins for schizophrenia? And the answer is, anybody know? Inconclusive. <laughs> uh, generally speaking, the answer seems to be somewhere around 50%. I've seen some ranges that it's 40 to 60, but generally around 50% is the answer that I see. And if it's um, fully genetic, then we would see 100% concordance, right? Um, but because it's not fully concordant, then we see less than 100%. And I think one of the really great uh, cases that this author made was we can attribute some of that to perinatal events, mm -hmm. right? right? So, so uh, one monozygotic twin that has a perinatal event that the other monozygotic twin is not, uh, doesn't participate in, so to speak, 
they, they don't have the same outcome. It's a different outcome or a different, there seems to be a different probability of developing schizophrenia. And so, so we know that at least perinatal events are a pretty significant part of this. I think they talked about uh, ventricle enlargement being associated with those perinatal events and they were even able to separate that out from a number of other factors, which I thought was you know, very fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have more to say, though. Tell me about sure. um, the, the thing that I think is very challenging for me is there's not a clear lesion in schizophrenia, right? Mm-hmm. We know that, generally speaking, you can, you can look at enough ventricles or enough patients with schizophrenia and know that on average their ventricles are a little bit larger. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very hard to actually image somebody and go, yup, that person has schizophrenia because their ventri- ventricles are a little bit larger. Right. So, so what's the pathological lesion in schizophrenia? So, and that's a, whoops, part of the, um, part of the, the answer, you know, is there are so many ways, so many areas of the brain that could be affected uh, that can, a lesion or an insult or a, a combination of insults can lead to psychosis, basically. The, I'll start general and start grossly, and, and for those who, you know, in pathology, we, uh, as a day-to-day, you know, we receive a, a specimen and we, we basically gross it and we describe it grossly, macroscopically, and then as we take sections, we then will, you know, the, the next day we'll look at them under stained, you know, microscope slides and, and talk about our, you know, microscopic dis- description of, of a tissue. So starting with the gross macroscopic uh, findings, usually that are seen either post-mortem or on imaging. You see cerebral uh, ventricle enlargement is a very common finding in it, but you can also see what I found to be a majority of the case, you can see decreases in the limb, uh, decrease in size in the limbic system of the brain, specifically in areas such as the hippocampus, amygdala, thalamus, and nucleus accumbens. Uh, there's, and I found a lot of research going into the hippocampus as well. Um, I know from what I remember from um, anatomy. <laughs> so wait a minute, what you remember about the hippocampus? Is, yeah. that, is that an ironic statement? It is. <laughs> okay. It, it kind of is, uh, <laughs> whether intentionally or not. Uh, it, 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 uh, it does deal with a lot of uh, new memory formation, which, I mean, of course, there's a lot more to say about the hippocampus uh, as far as its ties into, say, you know, delusions or, I guess you can, you can think of it as delusions being new memories that are false memories being formed or something like that, and so that, that can make some sense. Um, but you can also see lesions or increases, actually, so, so, before I get into the histological <clears throat> side of things too, I was particularly interested in seeing what kind of lesions could cause auditory hallucinations. Because mm-hmm. you know, the first thing that I think of in schizophrenia is you know voices and auditory hallucinations that patients suffer from, and uh, from you know a lot of that's what a lot of uh, your patients are you know having a hard time dealing with here, and so. Um, it seems to me that rather than having neurodevelopmental changes pathologically seen in the areas of the brain that deal with um, with the like the primary auditory you know uh, cortex or Broca's area and things like that, there are changes that are seen there. 
it's not necessarily histologic, but it's more of the function mm-hmm. that's that's uh, changed up the uh, you know the the synapses and the neurotransmitters and, and things like that. And so, so in an increase or decrease in activity, and I believe it's a, an increase in activity in these areas that can cause, that can lead to the auditory hallucinations. But as far as histological findings are concerned, um, there are a lot of general features that you might find. Um, some people have found that the neuropill, or if, if, I rem- uh, if I know this correctly, that's just basically the amount of neurons that you find in the brain. Because um, if you look at brain under a microscope, it's, it's, it's just a bunch of neurons. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so complex, but it's very just kind of jumbled in, the, in a regard, and, and it's, it's really interesting. But um, so some people have found that the number of neuropill or the neuro- number of neurons has been reduced. And other, other people have found that the, um, uh, let's see, there's also been a lack of gliosis as well seen in, in some histological studies of, of patients post-mortem with schizophrenia. Uh, so back to the hippocampus, you know, they, they took sections of the hippocampus, looked at it under microscope, and saw that there were less Purkinje and pyramidal cells in that in that area. So let me back up because I th- I think one of the things that's really challenging for me is I, I honestly have a very difficult time keeping track of first of all uh, neuronal tracts, right? I'm pretty yeah. sure that there's something called the, the pyramidal decusation. Sure. That sounds very familiar. <laughs> Cody's uh, laughing. He, yeah. He's a little closer to that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but once you get past that, it gets a little fuzzier for me. Right. right? What I think I've taken away, generally speaking, yeah. is that we haven't found a clear pathological lesion as much as we find less and more of different things or changes in function of different things that are, that are maybe kind of hard to pick up Unless you, like, know the diagnosis and they go, okay, well, it makes sense we see this in this diagnosis. Right. What I don't know is if it's specific to schizophrenia. In other words, just because I see that, is that a schizophrenia thing or does it happen in other kinds of conditions? Right. And I, th- I think what I can take away from that is that these pathological changes can be seen in other uh, other diagnoses and other diseases that may cause delusions or may not as well. If, yeah. if, if I were to summarize my findings too, kind of, it, it seems like rather than having a neurodevelopmental insult being cause, causing schizophrenia later down in the road, I would say that environmental factors, genetic factors, and neurotransmitter transmission, you know, dysregulation are more likely to be the the overall etiology that can lead to insults, which then can be a part of or lead to psychosis. I like the way that the Murray article talked about this a little bit, because I think what they said was, hey, when you have a brain that has this set of conditions, you can have a range of responses that are hard for us to totally understand. I think they talked about some polygenic uh, risk yeah. scores that yep. that mm-hmm. may have a range of outcomes. They talked about uh, adolescents and children who had difficulties with learning, and we know that that's part of schizophrenia, right? That that a lot of our patients have difficulties in school, uh, up to the point that they have the psychotic break, and then it seems like it it's more difficult 
after that even. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's perhaps the way of thinking about this is not as much there's a switch that's flipped and now you have schizophrenia, but more along the lines of these brains that have these kinds of things happening are vulnerable to cognitive disturbances that may include learning difficulties, that may include voices, that may include tactile hallucinations, that may include any range of sorts of things. And um, then there are additive factors to that. So uh, they mentioned, as you did, the increased risk associated with um, use of marijuana that's quite well documented now. There's a number of studies that seem to show some elevation of of uh, prevalence mm -hmm. of schizophrenia in people that are smoking marijuana. Um, the stress diathesis hypothesis, you have these terribly stressful events and maybe that changes cellular programming on some level from the DNA and that then moves you maybe one or two more steps into the direction of hearing voices. And so I think what I took away from uh, the, the article you sent me was maybe this schizophrenia stuff, we've always known it's a spectrum but I think we've, I think I've thought about it as a spectrum of voices and thought disorganization, but it might be even broader than that. It might be a spectrum of voices, thought disorganization, social impairment, and cognitive impairment, mm -hmm. and that there, the onset is maybe more variable than I thought. I've, I've, I've always felt like it's difficult to understand the onset of the cognitive component because some of my patients seem to have a stronger history of cognitive impairment earlier and others you know not as much until later so yeah. that's sort of where my my take home was yeah totally agree one other question that comes up on the shelf exam quite often is the prevalence of schizophrenia right so when I when I was taking uh, shelf exams the answer was 1% yeah. or when I was taking other exams that seems to vary a little bit sometimes you'll see a 0.8% number in the population but I think the more we learn about schizophrenia, the more we understand that there seems to be some genetic risk factors, some environmental risk factors, and so forth. We're now seeing that there are different populations that have different rates of schizophrenia. So generally speaking, the answer is 0.8% or maybe 1%. Right. But questions that are well nuanced may actually have ranges of percents. And um, Cody, I'm not sure if you've seen anything in your shelf exam preparation books that talk about differences in populations and rates of schizophrenia? I have not seen many questions in all my practice exams about prevalence of schizophrenia and haven't seen prevalence in, in different populations either. Um, I think the behavioral medicine shelf is more, more focused on what we were discussing earlier with the diagnosis and treatment rather than the prevalence although I feel like it is important information to have, to know, and to understand, especially when you live in a more, more diverse um, area of, of the country or the world. Um, if, if, this is, if this is the specialty that you want to pursue or gain additional knowledge for, I feel like that's really important information to have. I will add, too, that there is definitely a correlation of living in a more urban area versus rural to developing schizophrenia, whether it's purely environmental with uh, the stressful location that you might be living in, or if there's just something in the air or something, I don't know. Yeah, I've always been kind of mystified by that. I don't know if it's a, a 
people move to urban centers. I don't know if they've controlled for birth. I think they control for birth in the setting. And I think, if I remember right, I've read some articles that talk about duration living in the urban setting, but that seems a little murky to me. I, I've not been able to wrap my head around the whys on that. And usually for me to understand something, I need to have some kind of working hypothesis as why it might be that case. Lots of other things, too, that are sometimes attributed to um, onset of schizophrenia. I know that there are, are some articles that now talk about infection and a certain genotype being increased mm-hmm. risk. Yeah. I know that there are uh, um, articles that talk about being born in certain times of the year. I think yeah. that one comes up sometimes on my exams, but yeah. I don't know if it comes up on the shelf exams as much. Not not particularly, but I found that interesting too. Is that I think more if you're more born towards the late winter, early spring is when... You know, yeah, I think that's what Murray said that they yeah. had uh, uh, obtained data showing that. So. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, um, and if it, and just interjecting too, just some side study that I found too, uh, inflammation, as well as also a big theory where, which makes sense. You know, if you're stressed out uh, and you release more pro-inflammatory cytokines, that can lead to increased inflammation in the brain whether that functionally or, or physically changes the brain to lead to a greater risk of developing psychosis, that's also the case. Uh, and, and, it, and it can also increase dopamine sensitivity. So when you do add an, an additional stressful insult later on in life, you're so sensitive to dopamine that that increase can lead to um, something that we feel like is, is very well-known, well-established, is that increased dopamine leads to increased risk for psychosis. And one statement from that Murray article, too, is that all paths, all pathways lead to dopamine. Seems like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Which explains, in part, why our medications are dopamine antagonists, or partial antagonists, at the the least. Mm -hmm. I had uh, one slide that I was just going to share. So um, men are more likely than women to have schizophrenia and an earlier age of onset. The risk is increased by, and this is some of the, these are some of the things we mentioned, urban birth or residence, odds ratio 1.72. Migrancy, now this surprised me, odds ratio 4.6. That's the largest of the odds ratios on this slide. And this mm-hmm. is an article I think came from Colodro, uh, Condi, and uh, Kuvi, Duchesne, and Whitfield, uh, 2018 article. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, winter spring birth odds ratio 1.07 lifetime cannabis use 2.1 obstetric complications 1.79 uh, T. gondii antibodies 2.73 now that's interesting yeah. in the way that uh, uh, toxoplasma can co-opt some of the dopamine machinery in the brain and cause all sorts of problems uh, another interesting one perinatal famine odds ratio 2.3% interesting um, so yeah, just just these very interesting aspects, and and I think they all do speak to how the brain might be affected during those times, and how the brain's programming might you know, genes within the brain might be turned on or off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I like that as a, kind of a quick summary of some of those risk factors. Yeah. Um, what else do we want to talk about before we shut it down? I, I think. There are bits and pieces that I wrote down here in my notes as far as uh, etiology and whatnot, but I think we covered most of the broader and more important topics of what I found in my research and what 
probably is more relevant to uh, a stu us students uh, going through shelf exams and step and level tests as well. Um, yeah. So why don't you give us the biggest G whiz you found? Like the thing that just, you kind of went, huh, that's so, interesting. I, I had no idea about that or that that makes sense. Yeah. Something that just kind of. Yeah. I think uh, kind of tying in my first statement, summarize, you know, summary statement and how, and, and just my, and my last statement as well, just how everything can probably lead to dopamine. Uh, it's, it's, it's just really interesting how we found so much evidence for schizophrenia just based of, on treatment. We, we, we talked about um, antipsychotics on, on the first podcast too and just the mm-hmm. history behind that. And yeah, if it wasn't for that, uh, we perhaps would be even more in the dark of why schizophrenia occurs. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like, just to reiterate, uh, reiterate what I was saying before, I think the thing that I f- took from this was that everyone has found little bits and pieces of what may cause or what is found in the body when someone has schizophrenia. Some, someone that we have diagnosed as having schizophrenia. Nothing... But at the same time, because we know so much and that there's so much published about positive and negative findings in schizophrenia, that me, that tells me that there is so much we don't know about it at the same time. We haven't. There isn't a groundbreaking thing. I think, and that kind of goes into what else I want to say is like, oh yeah, everything really does lead to dopamine. It really leads to how we've been treating it for years now. That's it. it basically, kind of all funnels into how dopamine is regulated in the brain and the body and and I think that was the big take home for me and just really solidified what um, schizophrenia really is dysregulation of dopamine yeah. and, and dysregulation more than too much or too little I think it depends on the area yeah. of the brain and, yep. and we'll probably have a podcast about that in the future Cody final thoughts uh, just from my perspective as a third year medical student I feel like during the first year and into the second year of schooling, they teach you the very fundamentals, basics of, of a lot of different diagnoses, right? You learn the clinical pearls, the buzzwords, and things feel a little, a little more black and white. And then you get out in third year and you see how things really are. People with hypertension present in many different ways, right? And same, same goes for these mental um, uh, disabilities, these behavioral medicine issues, they have so many different um, presentations and you'll even see that on some of these shelf exams, these practice questions, you'll get two very different presentations, two very different delusions or hallucinations and it can be the same diagnosis. It's not so black and white, there's more gray area and being here at the state hospital you can kind of get a, a good taste for that, a good a good view of the of the variety that you see and just for from my education perspective I love it because you feel like you're actually treating a person a patient rather than treating the disease or the or the diagnosis that you have you're treating the person because that person is different from the one um, next to them that may have the same diagnosis so I've really enjoyed that here. I'm glad you like that. I think I think one of the common <clears throat> 
<clears throat> excuse me, one of the common misperceptions that students have when they come into the hospital is that uh, schizophrenia is, or maybe the severe mental illnesses, people made choices that led them to this illness. Based on your reading, based on your experiences here at the hospital, how many people do you think here made choices that caused them to be here? You know, um, I could, I'll, I'll, I'll phrase this carefully because I, I feel like some choices may have led to an increased sensitivity to developing it, such as drug use. Um, I know I know a lot of patients that, in addition to having a, a diagnosis along the lines of schizophrenia, there's always there's sometimes the the, the additional diagnosis of you know poly drug you know abuse substance abuse or something like that. Largely, I think the data supports marijuana. Marijuana specifically, that, right? yeah. but other than that, I would say no, no one chooses to. Even with that, how many people smoke marijuana that never have schizophrenia? Yeah, exactly. I mean, no, nobody that's here chose to hear voices. Nobody that's here were to develop this. I mean, most of the people that do exactly the same things don't have schizophrenia, right? This is a, a bad luck condition, and uh, you know, nobody, nobody chooses this. And, and the other thing I think that a lot of students might be th thinking about when they, uh, before they get here, is that it, it might be easier to choose how to manage it. But I think when you get here and you, you listen to the patients talk about their experience with the voices and how difficult it is to quiet those voices or to not listen to what they're saying and to you know, avoid some of the challenges that, that those voices bring into their lives. I mean, it's, it's an unbelievably um, difficult thing to live with. And, try and manage so yeah, yeah. Uh, just yeah I, I, I think that that's something that is hard to understand until you get here yeah and I wonder if either of you have like thoughts about that hmm it's it's definitely something that you I feel like I wouldn't have been able to understand until I got here until I actually got to experience it uh, firsthand um, you hear all about it, you may, you may even have relatives that have it, but until you sit down and try and work with someone who has it, it's a totally, it's a totally new experience that sheds a whole different light on, on the diagnosis, on the voices that hear, on how that individual tries to manage life with those voices. It's been, it's, it's been eye-opening. And I don't know how accurate it is, but I've, I've watched a few YouTube videos where they try to simulate what it's like to have these voices, uh, and yeah, regardless if it's accurate or not, it kind of gives you a new perspective of what it would be like to be in their shoes, you know. And it's very difficult. Yeah. Very difficult. And our patients work very, very hard, and it's it's so difficult. Yeah. Uh, on that note, I think let's let's stop here with again major take homes. <coughs> Excuse me. Major take homes for the shelf exam, understanding uh, the timeline for schizophrenia versus brief psychotic disorder versus schizophreniform disorder, understanding that there are necessary components for the diagnosis, including both positive and negative symptoms, and also being ready to talk about treatment for those that illness and the side effects of those medications. And that's probably something we'll pick up in another podcast. Yeah.
All right, guys, thank you so much. Again, uh, Phil and Cody, really appreciated having both of you here for this rotation. And uh, good luck in, in future travels, Phil. I hope that at some point in the future I'm reading articles of groundbreaking uh, <laughs> research involved in in uh, understanding the pathological lesions associated with schizophrenia and how they tie to the genome and maybe the perinatal insults that uh, lead to either some sort of upregulation or downregulation of some sort of gene. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Okay, we'll see what and, happens. Yeah. And Cody, I'm looking forward to um, hearing how your patients that have schizophrenia love seeing you because you get it, you know, the challenges they have and are able to manage those uh, pesky side effects that come with the medications because that's, that's a primary care role, managing those, those side effects, right? Yep. All right. I hope so too. Yeah. <laughs> very, very good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.